You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. And I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Folks, we're, today you're uh, listening in on a conversation with Dr. Ian Proven, who's been the Marshall Shepherd Professor of Biblical Studies here at Regent College since 1997, and just this year uh, announced that he'll be retiring at the end of 2022. Mm. So we had a great conversation with Ian around questions of hermeneutics and um, how do we understand biblical interpretation. So Ian was born and educated in the UK and he holds a PhD from Cambridge and he's taught sort of in King's College in London and the University of Wales and the University of Edinburgh um, and he's written a number of essays and articles um, and, and commentaries and things but the book we were sort of talking about him about today is called The Reformation and the Right Reading of Scripture which he published in 2017. So it was we, we talked about all sorts of things, inerrancy, infallibility, uh, the Reformation, what happened there and how do we understand, does Scripture interpret Scripture? What about what about the things we know in modern science? What about the things we learn historically? Does that Should that undermine our understanding of Scripture? Yeah, Ian was really helpful in navigating these questions too. And so, yeah, we hope it sheds light on how to do biblical interpretation better. And then for the next few weeks, actually, we're going to be having these kind of these same conversations on biblical interpretation with a few other people um, that we hope will shed light on uh, how we can understand scripture uh, in a more nuanced and uh, thoughtful and engaging and hope-filled way. We hope you enjoy just another conversation with Ian Proven, but it probably won't be Ian Proven, welcome back. Welcome back to the Region College Podcast. I hope this isn't your last one now that you're on your road to retirement, but you never know. Well, if you ask me, I'll show up even after I'm retired. So. Okay, that's good. This is good. This is good. We're going we're gonna to talk about um, hermeneutics, and you teach a class on that here. But so we talk to us, what is hermeneutics? And then what is biblical hermeneutics? Give us a bit of a sense on the difference between those two things. Well, you give me the chance to tell you one of my favorite jokes, which is that hermeneutics is a character from Asterix the Gaul comics. But that is a joke that only a certain number of small number of people would understand. Right. Let's move move straight on from there. Um, There's probably like maybe two people laughing right now. Like oh, in, in the whole world, in the whole world. They both live in France. Yeah. Um, so hermeneutics is really the science of interpretation. I suppose that's one way of putting it. And mm-hmm. by science, we mean, you know, there's rules. There, it's rule governed. It, it's a, it's a, a way of, of thinking about text that is, is supposed to be coherent and so on and so forth. Um, so the science of interpretation, not just with regard to the Bible, but with regard to life, um, mm-hmm. texts of all kinds. But I mean, we're all engaged in acts of interpretation all the time in our relationships as mm-hmm. well. And in fact, I think, um, as we'll probably see as we get going here, that keeping that broader idea is actually rather important because what makes sense in our relationships, I think, does help us to to work out what um, good ways of reading texts are and, mm-hmm. not and why. So biblical hermeneutics is simply thinking all about all of that in relation to scripture um, with the belief that scripture being 
human literature as well as holy scripture or in in the course of being holy scripture mm-hmm. that that these texts also require thoughtfulness in in our approach to them how would you respond to somebody who is a follower of Jesus and they just say, I, I just read the Bible. I, that's what I do. I go straight to the Bible and that's where I get my understanding from God. Like, why is something like hermeneutics necessary for us to understand? Well, the problem is that none of us just reads the Bible. <laughs> I mean, I think this is one of the immediate things to be addressed with folks when when people say that the thing is we all bring our questions our background our assumptions everything else to the bible and unless we're careful about it and thoughtful about it we can all too easily read in to the bible things that just aren't really there at all because we haven't thought about what we're doing Um, and so the notion that we can just pick up the Bible and read it, it's not even a biblical idea itself. I mean, I think of the story of the Ethiopian fellow, you may remember, who was in his chariot in the book of Acts and uh, reading the book of Isaiah. So plenty of commitment. He's got the book of Isaiah open there. He's bouncing along on a very uncomfortable road in a, in a chariot that doesn't have you know, very good wheels. So he's got a high commitment level. But of course, he, he doesn't know what he's reading and he, he needs Philip to, to help him. Mm. Um, so I, I just think the I just read the Bible thing is it's not just naive, it's dangerously naive because mm-hmm. it, it, there's a lack of self-reflection, a lack of self-awareness going on there. And I would I would like to to persuade that ordinary Christian person that that's not not to take not to take a stand there mm-hmm. really so yeah that's helpful mm-hmm. and then we've, we've talked a little bit we were talking with um we've talked with scott mcknight and with hans borsmer about their books and the canon kind of came up in some of those conversations and thinking about what comes first sort of the canon the church does the scripture come first does the canon come first does the church come first and then but you need the church to determine the canon and and that sort of stuff um talk to us about that is it a bit of sort of chicken and egg. Does scripture precede the church? Does the church prescribe sort of scripture in its canonical kind of form? How do we understand that relationship? Well, this is a very important question, of course, and it's one of the questions at the heart of the Reformation, I Mm. think. Yeah. Um, It's already a question back in the early church. And I simply don't understand how people can say the church comes first, because people do, lots of people have, but I would have thought it's perfectly obvious that Old Testament scripture precedes the church, um, right. that the church is appealing the whole time. Jesus is appealing to exegeting Holy Scripture in all of his interactions and teaching. The early church is appealing constantly that things are in line, you know, according to the scriptures, they're measuring um, themselves, they're claiming to be interpreting Holy Scripture already. Um, and so the church is really born already with the, with the Bible, a version of the Bible in its hands. Right. And it seems to me that the apostles knew that they were then building on that, they weren't doing something new. It wasn't that there wasn't a Bible and now there is one. Um, they were uh, writing with apostolic authority. And in the course of time, 
the Bible grew somewhat to its present dimensions. Mm -hmm. And so there, in that sense, I suppose you can say that the church precedes some of Scripture. But even that's not a terribly helpful way of putting it, because people didn't sit around and take a vote in a committee about which New Testament books were going to be in or out. Mm. Um, the, the crucial question really was, the crucial question among all a number of questions was, does this document, is it recognized already by the church as having apostolic authority? Mm. So it's not that, you know, there was a list produced and then ballots were cast as a, in some committee meeting somewhere. Yeah. Uh, Thank goodness. <laughs> well, in, indeed, it's it's not it's just not a good description of the the historical process. So, the church didn't really decide the canon ever. Actually, that's not what happened. Um, so, I I must say I'm baffled by some of this conversation. I I just think it's historically off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you kind of. I mean, you just brought up the reformers and the Reformation, and they uh, had a very uh, literal sense of the biblical text when when we read it. Um, and I wonder, could you just unpack what they what that they meant by that, as opposed to maybe more of an allegorical interpretation? Well, what they were concerned about, and indeed. What people like, like Augustine were already concerned about way before, people like Irenaeus and so on, what they were concerned about was taking Scripture seriously as we find it on the page, taking its communicative intent uh, seriously. So this is where our relationships help us. So we are talking to each other now, and as we do that, we're trying to discern each other's communicative intent. What does that question mean? And what does that answer mean? And you're not allowed, and I'm not allowed, simply to make up, make up, you know, my own intuition about what you're saying. You would rightly be quite offended if I interpreted your last question as pertaining to my my recent fishing trip. You wouldn't like that. Um, and so that's really what we best mean by literal. Uh, the letter on the page, as it were, or the spoken word as we're engaging in, trying to work out what the authors or the questioners are actually asking or saying or whatever. Um, and the reformers said, you know, if we abandon that very ancient and sensible idea, we are going to be departing from God's revealed truth, because we will be introducing ideas in through allegorical reading, which doesn't pay attention to that communicative intent, um, mm. and we're going to go astray. Um, mm. So for the reformers, um, this was a big issue, but it wasn't literal in the sense that sometimes people nowadays mean it. Right. I think sometimes nowadays people mean by literal what I would say would call wooden reading, mm. reading that doesn't pay attention to communicative intent and doesn't pay attention to things like metaphor and stuff like that. Um, so I'm not in favor of wooden reading. I think when we're trying to discern each other's communicative intent, we're also part of that is to work out whether that person just used a metaphor mm. or, or not. Yeah. Well, and whenever, even in, in kind of human relationships, as you're saying, you do, 
if I'm not sure what your communicative intent is, then I'll ask you another question and I'll dig a little bit deeper, right, to sort of understand, sorry, did you mean this or did you mean that? Is that coming from what you were talking about before or is that is that something that's going on right now? You know, you sort of, you do actually have to ask more questions in order to right. kind of get to the communicative intent. You do. And, and whereas in relationships, we have the ability to go back and forth. Right. The problem with texts is, of course, that, that they don't overtly, as it were, in the same, quite the same way, speak yeah. back and correct you. And so we have to be particularly careful with text because it's easier in a way to impose ourselves on text mm. than it is on other people, unless the people are just very passive. You know. right. but, but normal people, if you um, if you misunderstand them, are going to object and say, hold on, you've misunderstood me. Let me say it again in a different way. So the th difference with text is that we're dealing with dead authors and um, yeah. they require our careful respect in trying yeah. to discern what they're what they're saying. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it kind of it sort of relates to that whole idea where Luther's saying, you know, let let scripture interpret scripture. Um, and yet we've we utilize all sorts of other different kind of techniques to sort of help us understand scripture. So if anyone's taken your Old Testament class, a good chunk of visit the first number of weeks is on the ancient Near East and how do we understand? So in that sense, are we not letting, what does that mean if we're, are we letting scripture interpret scripture at that point? Or how do we understand Luther's sort of intent there? Well, that, that's a both and though, I mm. think. Mm. I mean, when we're trying to understand what a sentence means, let's just take a sentence. That's the easiest way to do it, I think. So what does a sentence mean? Well, you have to try and understand the language, the Greek or the Hebrew. You have to understand the literary conventions governing that language. There are all sorts of ordinary aspects of language like metaphor we've mentioned. Um, all of that is bound up. So for example, Jesus says, I am the door. Right. And the sensible reader doesn't go looking for hinges, right? Because we recognize that that's a, a metaphorical statement. Now, there's a truth claim being made, but you have to move beyond dictionary definitions of door to get there. Mm. So that's, that's all bound up with interpretation. But when we're reading the whole of scripture and trying to work out what we should do with a sentence, so what's the weight of this sentence? How does this sentence relate to other sentences, particularly when we're dealing with difficult or obscure passages? The rule of the church has always been, and Augustine already is saying this kind of thing as well, that you, you start from what is clear and in the canon and you measure other things in, in that context. And that's really what we mean by scripture, interpreting scripture. It doesn't mean we don't use other ordinary means for yeah understanding language. It just means that if we're trying to discern what God is saying to us through the whole canon, mm -hmm. we can't just take a sentence and run with it without paying attention to anything else in scripture. That's really what was. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah, and, yeah. and when you mean the whole canon, you mean like the old and, and new Testament. You're not just talking about new Testament authorship. Uh, in, indeed. I mean, you could say that I rather, that's the one thing I have to say. <laughs> That's the one thing you definitely don't mean. <laughs> it's the one thing I've I felt obliged to say because so many evangelical Christians appear not to believe it. But yes, I mean, 
I think it's very problematic to to narrow scripture down to the New Testament. And I believe the uh, apostles themselves would have been appalled to discover that this is what people were doing with their writings. Um, yeah. yeah, the whole Bible. Yeah, and I mean, just the reason I ask that is because, like you said, that is a common misunderstanding. Is and I don't know what what would you say a lot of the reason behind evangelical Christians wanting to like detach almost from Old mm-hmm. Testament teachings or um, not regard them as or some of the scriptures not regard them as part of the the canon even. Well, I'm sure that there are many reasons. <clears throat> um, some of them are historical, and they have to do with how other people who are your enemies used the Old Testament. So I think that some of this goes back to previous persecution of the Anabaptists, for example, right? So you see the same um, thing in modern-day Israel-Palestine, where Palestinian Christians find it difficult, many of them find it difficult to receive the Old Testament of Scripture because they, they view it as the text of their oppressor, as it were, right? So there, there's historical communal reasons. And then there are some uh, theological reasons, I think. So you, you extrapolate from the fact that you're told in a number of places that this or that aspect of the Old Testament no longer applies to Christians, and you generalize from that, mm-hmm. and you get into a law gospel way of talking where the Old Testament is simply the law. Right, and it's gone now, and now we're in the gospel age. So there are there are historical reasons, there are theological reasons, and um, people get to this position for a mixture of mm. these reasons. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Thinking about sort of the um, you know the postmodern person, and so lots of lots of interpretation. There's been different interpretations and perspectives that have, have, emerged, have kind of emerged in Protestantism in the last probably 500 years or whatever. Um, but the postmodern thing seems to th- say there's there's not necessarily an objective way to read this text, but how do you what how do you help us understand that? Like is there an objective way? Can we bring different experiences and perspectives to bear on the text to help us understand it given where we are and culture and how do you how do you understand that? Well if there's no objective way in the end to read the text, then I think scripture ceases to be scripture because what right. scripture claims is that it's the revelation of God. All scripture God breathed and useful for the following purposes. And so you need to be able to read it reasonably reliably um, yeah. in order for that to, to work, as it were. So this idea of no objectivity in mm. text must be wrong. And generally, it must be wrong as well, because we routinely assume there's objective meaning in all kinds of text. If you come to a stop sign in your car in Vancouver, generally, although not recently since COVID, I've noticed people starting <laughs> just to drive through these darn things. But I mean, by and large, you don't you don't engage in an extended hermeneutical discussion about what the word stop means. I mean, you just, you know... And so it is with other texts, legal documents, essays. I mean, you know, of course, there's an objective meaning. We're trying to get at the communicative intent, right? That's the objectivity of it. And whatever my subjectivity as I come to engage with that, we recognize that 
that, that although I bring my concerns, my prejudices and everything else to this exercise, that in the end of the day, those are not the things that should control the outcome, right? So postmodern reading, to the extent that it's made us think about this, the way that we subjectively engage with text, mm. I think is very helpful yeah, and important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, as long as it's kept in, in proper connection to the notion of objectivity, we don't have a difficulty. But postmodern reading, like postmodern culture more generally, tends to want to go way further than that, at least selectively it does. <laughs> it wants to go further than that in order to deconstruct other people's kind of uh, positions. Uh, it's interesting to me, though, that you don't typically find people um, capable of sustaining that argument about everything is relative, there is no meaning and stuff. Yeah. You, you can't live your life on that basis. Mm -hmm. So what happens tends to be a, a high degree of um, selectivity mm -hmm. in, in terms of that discussion. Do, do you think it's helpful then, you know, in our postmodern reading to have, I mean, obviously you're not throwing out all postmodern readings, but just kind of where it where it goes to. But do you think it's helpful to have um, different contexts and backgrounds uh, interpreting the biblical text in order to have a more uh, robust understanding of what uh, the biblical authors were actually trying to to say? Anything that gets us to understand the biblical text more deeply and better is fine. And that must include, I think, listening to other uh, intelligent Christian readers from all over the globe, for example, the global church, because this is one of the ways in which we discern yeah. whether we are merely reading culturally, which right. is, is a problem, right? So we'd like to find out if that's the case, I imagine. So of course, um, a lot of these things, if they make you step back and think once again, have I really grasped this text? That's fine. When we begin to dispute there's any answer, though, possible at the end of that quest, uh, that, that is meaning itself beyond us, settled meaning beyond us, then I think we've, we've gone on to um, incoherent, unsustainable territory, actually. Yeah. Um, and of course, particularly from the point of view of scripture, this, this utterly then defeats the ability of scripture to speak to us from God. Like if you give it, kind of give us an example, like one thought that comes to mind is, um, so I'm, I'm a white Australian, so a kind of more individualistic culture. Me having someone who's from a more communal culture kind of looking at scripture and thinking about scripture will surely help me kind of get at that um, sort of the, where the, the communicative intent from where there is a more communal culture. Do you know what I mean? So No, I do. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think part of the problem here is that, that sometimes in, in the West, of course, just because of our particular history generally, we do tend to think much more individualistically yeah. than the apostles did actually mm, back right. in their culture and certainly mm. in other parts of the world now. Mm -hmm. So yes, other people can help us and we can help other people. And mm -hmm. this is historically, this has been one of the, 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 the most fertile aspects of the Regent College community because we gather 
from all parts of the world. And I think that many students would say that bumping up against other people from different cultures who are clearly smart, committed Christians, but don't just endorse, you know, your own view of this or that. And indeed, sometimes don't endorse your own, what you think is obvious about what scripture is teaching. Mm. That's Mm -hmm. all good. If it doesn't descend into a, well, you you can believe this and I can believe that and we'll just all just pretend it doesn't matter, as it were. That's a different thing. It, as long as the quest is still for the truth, right. then that's good. But when we when we when we begin to throw our hands in there and become relativists, mm. uh, that's a different matter. Right. So when we say, well, we'll just have to agree to disagree. Well, no, not really. I, I mean, if you mean we don't kill each other, of course, I utterly approve of that. But <laughs> if we mean we're just going to you know, give up on the quest for truth because we temporarily cannot find a resolution to our difficulty, that, that's a bigger problem because I think we're at that point potentially giving up on truth-seeking. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. Do, do you think that uh, biblical texts, a passage or even I don't know, chapter or book. Well, I guess more so biblical text could have multiple meanings. Um, yes, because I think that our ordinary human communication sometimes can function mm. that way. I mean, we're, mm. we're familiar with the way in which our own statements um, maybe have uh, a, a more than one level of meaning, but they're both contained within the, the rules of the game, as it were. So I think one has to be open to that. And sometimes I think authors write things or say things deliberately that have more than one dimension to mm-hmm. them. But again, the key here is, can I root that, though, in what I reasonably made it deduce about communicative intent? Mm-hmm. So um, if I wanted to suggest to you, Nick, that what you just said in that last question, you know, had more than one meaning. Uh, well, I think you might well object. No, it didn't. I was asking you a very direct question. <laughs> and it wasn't complex. and It wasn't intended to be clever, you know. And and so, yes, we should be open to these possibilities. But the trouble is that all too often, historically, when people have gone not very far down that path, mm-hmm. they've ended up finding once again in the text what they want to find rather mm. than what is actually there. Yeah. And that's why the reformers objected to allegorical reading. It wasn't that they were not capable of using it. Mm. Um, they were, but if in principle, though, if you were asking the question, yes, but but surely this this cannot this is obscuring the truth of God and the reformers. This was one of their great battle cries, wasn't it? That the yeah. church had lost a grasp of fundamental gospel truth because they were not attending to the business of literal reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can I go a little bit further in that? I just have a follow-up question in that, if that's okay. Um, I, I'm i just wondering, could do, would a biblical text, so for example, I, I think it's like Isaiah 7 that prophesies about the birth of, birth of Jesus, or at least that's how we've understood that text. Could the biblical text, um, in a sense, have multiple meanings for that time period, for the New Testament authors 
and for us today and how we understand it? Well, I think there is, and this really pertains to your last question, I think there, there can be such a thing as a double literal meaning. Mm-hmm. Let me explain why. I, I think that when uh, Isaiah 7 is talking about the Emmanuel character, I think it's fairly clear from the immediate context in the book of Isaiah that that is somebody, that's a contemporary or a near contemporary that's being talked to. Mm-hmm. But in the book, in the whole book of Isaiah, as we read it now, and certainly in the context of the whole of scriptures, read it now, it's clear that the ultimate fulfillment of that idea of Emmanuel is, is found in Christ. And I would say that there you have a kind of uh, a literal meaning at the level of the original prophetic pronouncement, but you also have a literal reading at the level of the book of Isaiah. Mm -hmm. And that's what the New Testament authors are are picking up. So there's a good example where you're grounding both meanings in the actual text. Mm -hmm. You're not just saying, well, I would like to think that this relates to, you know, well, I mean, to some Messiah who showed up yesterday in Vancouver, for example, you know, mm. I, pref- I prefer to think that that's what the Emmanuel prophecy relates to. Well, you have no basis for that claim, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, remember I said science of interpretation? Mm. There, there are rules, and you have to argue, and and you have to protect the text from yourself. And so, we approach this in a sober, reasoned way, and we can make a very good argument for the idea that Isaiah seven is speaking at more than one, one level. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Thanks. Um, some of the, two of the words that come up a lot in interpretation are these words of infallibility or inerrancy or, and both of those, can you define those for us firstly, infallibility and inerrancy? Um, and yeah, so let's start there and how we, how we think about those in relation to, the biblical text. So this is tricky because how other people might define these very likely would, well, may differ from how I'm going to do it. Mm-hmm. I've never been clear about the difference between the two, to be honest, in mm. practice. Yeah. Both of them, both of them are trying to say that scripture does not err, does not make mistakes in what it seeks to teach. I think that's what both of those mm-hmm. words mean. Mm-hmm. Um, and this goes back to communicative intent, right? What God means to say through scripture, God does not make mistakes in, as, as we might well imagine, right? right? Theologically, it would be rather surprising <laughs> to say something else. And so in, in I think both these words understood in that way are saying something really important. Um, when Paul's when Paul writes that all Scripture is God breathed, that's really, you know, that's that's those are the kinds of texts that those, these words are, are rooted in. Um, the the crucial thing then is the question: Yes, well, what is it that God seeks to teach? Mm. And that's where we get into difficulty because people disagree on that, right? And they will often use the word inerrancy in particular, to actually defend a particular set of convictions on that point. So, for example, you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture because you don't believe in the six-day creation, right? Which, 
begs the question, of course, yes, but what does God mean to teach us through Genesis 1, right? So it's actually an argument about hermeneutics. It's not an argument about authority or error or whatever, but the whole conversation doesn't even get to begin because the word inerrancy becomes almost like a club with which you beat your opponent into submission Mm. before the conversation can get going. So if we're talking about scripture not participating in error when it comes to what God is teaching, I think that's a necessary and a good thing to say about scripture. I'd stand by that. But of course, um, what Christians through the ages have then gone on to deduce from that differs somewhat mm. from the beginning right down to the to present time. This, this has been a, an ongoing discussion in the church. Augustine is already objecting to people he knows who are reading Genesis in a in what I would say is a wooden manner. Mm-hmm. And John Calvin comes in on the same line in the Reformation and says the same thing to contemporaries of his who don't like astronomy very much. And Calvin says, basically, what's the problem? Astronomy's cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, he doesn't say that, but you know what I mean. It's, As I'm, your postmodern I'm, I'm, up, I'm updating John Calvin. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he, <laughs> he basically says, no, astronomy is a, very good, is, a, is a very good science and it can display the glory of God in its own way. And we, we shouldn't be um, rejecting it just because we're ignorant of these things. Um, so inerrancy, infallibility, these are fraud words because of mm. all the, the heat mm-hmm. that has been generated on these right. issues. That's good. That's really helpful. I, just to articulate back to you what I understand you're saying is you're, you're in, the, in the essence, it's communicative intent of what, for example, Genesis in the beginning is actually trying trying to teach and trying to say. It's not like trying to articulate a specific, detailed, historical, accurate way of how things were created and in, in exactly that order, but it's trying to actually teach something, the Big Bowl authors, and for that time period and context, and the way they write, too. Yes, you, you have accurately grasped my communicative intent <laughs> in insisting that we pay attention to the communicative intent of Genesis 1. This is the whole ballgame of hermeneutics. We're striving to understand these things. And there's very good reason internal to Scripture itself to doubt whether Genesis 1 is, is aiming to give us a mm. chronological kind of modern scientific kind of um, treatise um on on creation so um yeah so discerning the genre that's a word we haven't mentioned discerning the kind of text Mm. we're dealing with in the same way that when jesus says i am i am the door Mm -hmm. we we have to think about the nature of that statement well it's, it's similar the same question needs to be asked with with biblical text more generally what kind of text are we dealing with because not all texts are the same as. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, yeah. I mean, in that, like, because even like historical findings and archaeology and then modern science, there, there's a, I guess there's things out there that could potentially in, 
in some people's mind then contradict the biblical text or mm. the historical text. And so I, I don't know. I, I think what you're saying then is like we have to keep in mind of what the biblical authors were trying to communicate. And even if there are findings that maybe contradict supposedly the biblical text, then we don't need to throw out the, these specific passages or even the whole Bible as not being true or inerrant or in, infallible. Yes, I mean, I, I would say, I would make the bold claim that the majority of Christian tradition through the ages has been that we would expect all truth to cohere. And when it appears not to for the moment, then it could be we've misunderstood the new truth that we have discovered, or it could be that we have mm. uh, not examined whether our, our reading of scripture it has to be revised. I mean, all truth will cohere, but the problem may lie in you know different in different places. Mm. Um, of course, the church um, in the Middle Ages was very much wedded to Greek thinking and Greek philosophy as as the major conversation partner. Part of that involved an acceptance, along with everybody else, of Ptolemy's view of the cosmos and. You know, we have good reason, and we have had since Copernicus to think that Ptolemy wasn't entirely on the ball with regard to his view of cosmology. But a number of biblical texts were read back in the 16th century along the lines of Ptolemaic cosmology. Hmm. And so now you have to go back and think, well, okay, now I wonder if the church was reading those texts in the best possible way. Right. Um, I, I don't think contradiction is possible at the end of the day mm -hmm. when it comes to truth, although, of course, I want to qualify that by reminding us that there are such things as paradox and mystery, and yeah. it's, it's difficult for us to distinguish the difference between, between, between those things sometimes. But surely all truth, if it were to be accurately grasped, must cohere together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and when we find examples where that's not the case, we need to um, think further and explore. Mm -hmm. Yep. And as your your old buddy um, Phil Long, our old buddy Phil Long, would say, if something doesn't ultimately kind of doesn't make sense straight away in the biblical text, whether it's in light of what I've understood, we've understood in science or or something, it's not to sort of look away and to then just chuck it all out, but actually to look closer you know if something doesn't make sense don't look away look closer mm. um, well i mean that's true of any puzzling aspects of I guess text so, yeah. as well yeah. i mean uh, one yeah. of the one of one of the many things i have against people like origin for example the church father who is such a heavy allegorizer is that in my experience of reading him he doesn't linger very long with difficult mm. texts Mm. He simply uses, so there's a problem here, it, it must be truth at a, a, a deeper level. And in one sense, he's right. It, it's yeah. just that where he goes next is wrong. So he doesn't, he sees the interesting thing in the text, but he doesn't dwell long enough with it mm. to actually see, to ask the further questions you would need to get a deeper grasp of what's going on. We hope you've been enjoying this wonderful conversation but Claire wanted to take a few seconds just to share some ways you could get involved more in the Regent College podcast. Totally. We at Regent, we love people being a part of the things that we're doing. And so there's a couple of different ways you can do that. 
If you've enjoyed this conversation or any of our other conversations, let someone know. Share it with them. Share it with a family member, with a friend, with someone who you think would appreciate this and would love to hear it. That's the first way. Mm-hmm. Second way, you could you could give us a rating or write a little uh, comment on one of the on wherever you listen to your podcast. That would be another great way. And then the final way that you could uh, participate with us is if you've enjoyed the podcast and you'd like to give a donation to Regent College, then we would warmly receive that. Yeah. You can do that by heading to rgnt.net forward slash give and, you know, in the comment box, let them know that we sent you. Right, Nick? That's right. We do love hearing when people have appreciated the podcast. And so let you can let Nick know by sending an email to podcast at regent-college.edu. When Nick and I are having these conversations, it's sometimes hard for us to realise that actually people listen to these. And so when we get emails or we get a little note in the comment box on the donation page of our website, it just reminds us that people are actually listening and we love that. So please let us know that you're listening. Let us know if there are things that different profs that you'd like to hear from. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation. So given given all of this, given all of these things, what's your own, Ian, what's your own kind of conviction on biblical interpretation? And then what's, therefore, then what's the kind of goal of biblical interpretation? Well, I think we should approach biblical interpretation in the first instance in the same way that we would approach any interpretation. I, I can't see a good reason for thinking we should make a disjunction between creation and the church, as it were, or creation mm. and redemption here. So, mm. I mean, our biblical texts are human texts, it's human literature. And as people like Augustine absolutely saw very clearly, it conforms to all the normal rules of, of such mm. things linguistically and in other ways. Um, and so, we should certainly do all of our due diligence in all of these areas, language mm. and, and literary convention and genre and so on. And uh, God has chosen to reveal himself in these ways and not other ways. And I think that's theologically very significant. I mean, we could have had a Bible like the Quran, for example, but we don't. We have mm. this kind of Bible and this kind of Bible presses certain things upon us, right, in terms of how we engage with it. Now, of course, at the end of the day, a Christian reader doing all of that work is interested, well, more than interested, regards it as a matter of life and death uh, to hear the word of God in the midst of all of that and to rightly divide the word of truth, as the old King James Version used to put it. And so we are not, we're not doing less than the ordinary, uh, not very religious interpreter, but we are then going on to do more. Mm. We're, we're asking, well, how is it that this text here properly understood? How does this communicate the word of God to me, to us, to the, our church, to whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how I see it. It's an integrative um, task it's not looking away as you say it's not it's not special pleading it, it's trying to do the business of the pursuit of truth um, responsibly uh, the goal of it of course um, I've kind of already alluded to in answering the first part of the question the goal of it is to discern the revelation of God in scripture and what this means for what I should believe and how I should live 
Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a very uh, mm-hmm. well. It's simply stated. It's not simply mm-hmm. done. Yeah, but, I was going to say yeah. <laughs> it, it, but at one level, it's a simple matter, and that's what the reformers said. It's mm. it's basically a simple matter, folks. Yeah. Actually, it's not. This is not rocket science. Which is why they said ordinary folks availing themselves of ordinary means can can do it. Right? Mm. You don't. You don't need particularly you know particular monks or whatever they said or people in the hierarchy of the church um ordinary folks can make a good a good go at this although like everybody else we all need all the help we can can get mm-hmm. um, yeah that's basically the whole yeah. thing in a nutshell that's great ian i mean and if you had any like recommendations if people are like interested more in delving into this in biblical interpretations is there any like resources or books you would recommend are you inviting me to recommend my own book <laughs> and the raging college bookstore that's what we're inviting you to do both those <laughs> well things. i know I, i'd love to do both <laughs> those things i'm a great fan of the raging college bookstore well of course i have written this very large book called the reformation of the right reading of scripture and it is it's designed to be a pretty comprehensive account of, of biblical hermeneutics um historically um logically theologically um it it, it goes the whole gamut right through history down into the postmodern period and so it is a big book um but i think it's capable of being read <laughs> uh, you know as as a as a as a book and it's certainly a good reference point because mm. i deal with all many of the questions we've raised canon and text and language and modernity and postmodernity and science i deal with it all there because it really is a kind of um, a distillation of the last um, several decades of thinking yeah. about, about this topic on my part. So mm-hmm. that's great. That's what I wanted to hear, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. That's Speaking great. of, um, yeah, I'll go, go, go Nick. No, go. Well, are you okay to talk about your um, retirement, Ian, or would you rather not? Oh, no, I'm very happy right? to. I mean, it's been a very good 25 years at Regent College, but. 25 years when you say it out loud that's a long time <laughs> and um i you know i i i just with my family i i came to the conclusion last semester that um really the time had come to because you have to give such a long time's notice mm-hmm. in fairness right so you're always you're thinking a year ahead and you're thinking well if i feel this way now i'm even more likely to feel this way you know, at the end of the year. So um, I put things in motion to to retire at the end of 2022. But in many ways, I don't imagine my life is going to differ very greatly from the life I have now. Certain things will change. Um, my ability to timetable my week with more flexibility will change and so on. But I don't imagine I'm going to give up teaching and speaking engagements and writing and podcasting and all the other stuff that I do. It's just that it's a refocusing really more than a retirement. I don't, I don't really identify with the word retirement. Mm. It's just stopping doing this thing and, and starting doing some other version of this thing. That's that's all it is really. Yeah. Yeah. That's good news. That's good news for us. Yeah, definitely. Um, but so good to be with you yet again. Mm. Well, I mean, we'll probably do it again sometime, given that you said 
No, I did. I gave I gave you the I gave you the entry point. So, uh, exactly. I can't can't complain about it if you do. So <laughs> thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.